Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine, a show where we report, rebel, and tell it like it is. On this show, we center your concerns about rebuilding our nation and advancing the promise of equality. Join me as we tackle the most compelling issues of our times. On this show, History Matters, we examine the past as we think about the future. Now on today's episode, we focus on moms, childcare, single parenting, and teen parenting. We know that women have been hard hit by the global pandemic. Professor Jessica Calarco put it this way, other countries have social safety nets, the US has women. Now the Center for American Progress framed it this way back in February. Over the course of the first 10 months of the pandemic, Women, particularly women of color, lost more jobs than men. What does this mean? Overall, according to Diana Besh and Shalipa Padke, women have lost a net of 5.4 million jobs during the recession, nearly 1 million more job losses than men. And the scary part hides in plain sight. In a recent report written by Besh and Patke, they say the job losses in December 2020 are a stark illustration of these trends. Black, Hispanic, and Asian women accounted for all of the women's job losses that month, and 154,000 Black women dropped out of the labor force entirely. Forget about calling this a recession. They're telling us Take a page from Dr. C. Nicole Mason's book. She's president and CEO of the Institute for Women's Policy Research, and she's calling this a she session. So in this episode, we celebrate moms. And we also hear from some of our listeners who are giving shout outs to the women in their lives. And you can find those postings on our website too at MsMagazine.com. But we also level set. Moms are feisty, sure. Helping with homework, putting food on the table and picking up the laundry and packing lunches that are being eaten at home. But let's get real. A lot of moms are tired and some are ticked off and they just don't have time for the nonsense or what Representative Katie Porter calls the BS. When asked by talk show host Samantha B about appearing in the nightmares of Republicans in Congress, here's what Representative Katie Porter had to say. Um, no, I think that's a, a very comfortable rule for me. Okay. If you're full of bullshit, I'm coming for you. Like, I just don't have time. I'm a single mom. The dinner's burning. I'm late to something. I have 4,000 emails. My hair is frizzy. I haven't shaved my legs in a week. No bullshit. Needless to say, that clip went viral. But Representative Porter's not the only mother bringing honesty to what mothering is like. In 2018, Michelle Obama sat down with journalist Gail King and honestly opened up about marriage, mothering, and going to counseling. As she put it, quote, it all works until you have kids, your first joint project where inequalities are felt, end of quote. Michelle Obama was a working mom before President Obama's 2008 win, and as the former first lady told Gail King, she was managing child care. And sick kids and trying to coordinate my job, and he's flittering in. There were, tensions started to 
to arise. And we knew that we needed to have a place where we could really work these feelings out. Was he like, great, let's go to counseling? Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. I can't no, wait was, to go. You know, he was, Barack is a problem solver. It's like, I'll buy a book and we will study <laughs> on relationships, on relationships yes. and we will study chapter 12. You read chapter 13 and we can figure this out. So if Michelle Obama is trying to figure it all out, what about everybody else? We have a great episode for you, one that touches on the realities of mothering in these times. In this episode, we explore whether current laws and policies leave mothers behind, particularly moms living with low incomes. What should parents generally, and mothers in particular, be asking or demanding of their legislators and the Biden-Harris administration? And how do single moms fit in, especially teenage moms? How do moms build back after pandemic. Now I begin this special mom's edition with Representative Katie Porter. Congresswoman Katie Porter represents the 45th Congressional District in Orange County, California. She knows firsthand about the challenges that families face and has introduced bipartisan legislation that would more than double the amount families can set aside pre-tax to help pay for preschool, summer day camp, before and after school programs, and child or adult daycare. So Representative Porter, you've been outspoken about being a single mom while in Congress. How has that informed your work in the legislature? Because that's more than, it's, it's not rhetoric. What you're doing when you speak about being a single mom in Congress is really level setting in a whole different way. And can you tell our listening audience a bit about that? Well, I'm, I'm definitely living the real dream as a single mom. Um, my children are now 15, 12, and nine, um, but I started you know, running for office be- you know, years before this, and of course was a working um, professional before I ran for office. So you know, when I think when I started this process of being a representative, I didn't think that much about being a single mom. It was part of who I was, but I didn't see it as that politically significant. I thought, well, it's my, it's my expertise on consumer law. It's my expertise on housing. And then I got to Congress and I was trying to meet people. And I thought, you know, I've met a lot of these kinds of people. I met a lot of those kinds of people. Let me meet the other single moms. And there were none in the 116th Congress. Not one single mom besides me on either side of the aisle at that time, despite there being millions and millions of people who are single parents in this country. And so what does that mean then when there's that lack of representation in Congress? We're not talking about a pod of you being one out of 10 or 15 or 20. We're talking about you being one out of hundreds. One out of 435. And I think one of the things that happens is, you know, kind of what is an urgent issue to me and um, how I think about what's the real life effect of policies is just colored by my experience as a single mom, um, as other people's experiences, you know, color how they think about things. So a great example of this is, you know, in the pandemic when um, over a year ago when schools closed, that was a really tough day, really tough week, trying to figure out what I was gonna do. And it was tough for millions of American parents, especially mothers of young children. And I remember saying to someone in June, we really have to start working on how we're gonna get schools reopened. 
And they said, you know, I haven't thought about that. I mean, school reopening is a long ways away in August. And boy, I started thinking about it the very day my kids' school closed. Um, and so I think one of the things I push back a lot is, you know, when I say things, they'll say, well, your situation's so special. It's really not. Um, single moms are just one more kind of family dynamic that we have in this country. We have grandparents raising kids. We have people living with roommates, um, same-sex couples. And these are all part of the fabric of what it means to be an American family. And so at its core, what I'm fighting for is the ability of every American family, regardless of its structure, to be successful in our economy and be treated equally in our society. Because that means something for the kids, too. You know, in fact, when I hear that, you felt it on the day that other Americans felt it. There was nobody else that was special to pick up those pieces. You had to do that work. No, the people who didn't feel it were these elected officials, but they're the unusual ones, right? The rest of America, it was panicking on the day those kids showed back up um, and said, mom, I'm home for the rest of the year. And it turned out to be truly a full year in many instances. So I do think that, you know, kind of what you see as problems and how you relate to them. And I think I just read, you know, read policies differently. So another great example of this is President Biden um, proposed and Congress has expanded the child tax credit. Sure, you've talked about that a lot. It's a terrific policy. It can help lift, you know, half of American children out of poverty. And we're fighting now to try to make that expansion permanent. But when I read it, one of the things I immediately noticed was that you children who are being who are living in single parent households are less likely to qualify for the child tax credit and are going to receive less money in many instances and it's a child tax credit if the benefit is for the child no kid should get less because their parents are divorced or widowed or married there's no discount on being a single parent when i take my kids to summer camp or the grocery store everything costs exactly the same. And so if we want to support children, we shouldn't be punishing them depending on their parent status. So we call this the single parent penalty. And I've been fighting to try to get this changed as we go to make the child tax credit um, expansion permanent. And to just underscore that, I'm so happy that you mentioned that. Um, it reminds me actually of a speech that Reverend Jackson gave when he was running for office in 84, 88. And he was talking about unequal pay. So not only is there being a single parent and a single mom, but you're also already talking about pay disparities. And you're right, you don't get a discount on the cost of milk, the cost of bread, uh, the cost of your kids cereal. And so that's an, an excellent point. Well, to think about some of the legislation that you've been also been working on, because you are in the trenches and the Family Savings for Kids and Seniors Act is just one of those. And that was introduced during this uh, period of pandemic. So so what's that about? Can, can you tell us? So a bit? Yeah, that's a bipartisan bill, the Family Savings for Kids and Seniors Act. I introduced it last Congress um, and reintroduced it again. Um, and what it would do is allow workers to save more of their own money tax-free to pay for the cost of child care or elder care so that they can go to work. And so we know that like small businesses, if you need a printer to be able to work, you can deduct that printer as a business expense. Um, and so we ought to be letting people save more money to pay for child care. And this amount that you can save right now is $5,000 doesn't matter if you have one child or 10, it's $5,000 flat. And I always used to wonder, I was fortunate to work um, at University of California, Irvine, where we had this benefit. 
And I would always think, who thinks childcare is $5,000 a year? I know, right? People it, are it's paying so much mortgage more than level. That. Exactly. I got to Congress and I got, when I started working on this bill, I got my answer. Ronald Reagan. This was a Ronald Reagan bill passed in 1986 and to allow people to set aside $5,000. And there's two important things there. One, this was bipartisan then, it should be bipartisan now. Every mother, every father, every daughter or son who's caring for a parent needs some help sometime, whether it's full-time or part-time or occasional. Um, and the second thing is 1986, $5,000. Childcare is one of the fastest, most fast rapidly increasing expenses that families have. We hear so much about the rising price of drugs, the rising price of college, the rising price of childcare in many cases and in many parts of the country outstrips those. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, I've heard of instances, quite honestly, of people who are law professors and medical school professors who are saying that they can't have kids because they can't afford childcare and then can't afford schooling. And you, and you say that, okay, if these folks can't afford it, then how are other people to struggle and make it with having kids? You know, we're just sending mixed messages in our society about have kids, love your kids, et cetera, and then all of the penalties and lack of support that comes with having kids. Well, and you and I, and I mean, you know, and Ms. certainly, um, you know, there's the commitment here is to allowing each person to make their own decisions, to craft the kind of family and work and life choices that they want, that work for them. And so for some people, that will mean no kids. For some people, that will mean four or five or six kids. But we want people to have those opportunities. And, um, you know, you're, you're really right that there are people who are making choices solely because of what's economically possible. Um, and it's not just those who are earning minimum wage. Child care remains unaffordable virtually for anybody. And, and here's a quick way to see why. When my daughter Betsy went to preschool at the University of California, Irvine, it's a, it's a lovely preschool. It's in an older building, was built kind of back when the university got started. Her tuition as a four-year-old was more than it would have been for her to be an undergraduate at wow. UCI studying chemistry or, wow. you know, political science or math. So we, every time you hear someone say college is so unaffordable, just substitute the word childcare mm -hmm. and you understand exactly how hard this is, but we don't talk about it in the same way. There's a lot of hand-wringing about how we should help parents afford and kids afford college. But when it comes to young child care, that's so often been said, that's just, that's just the parent's responsibility. But by parent, what we really so often mean is mom. Yep. Yeah. No, you are so absolutely right. And then women having to stitch it all together uh, to try to help each other out. So in thinking about the legislation that you've been pushing forward, uh, there's also the No Surprise Bills for New Moms Act. What's that about? Yeah, the No Surprise Bills for New Moms Act. Um, this is such a good fix on a relatively straightforward problem. And it's the kind of gotcha that I think every mom hates. You try to read the forms, you try to fill everything out, you know, and you still end up missing something. When you go to have a, a child, when someone goes to have a child, there's a period on which you have to add that baby to your insurance. And it's short, it's like, it's like 14 days. Oh my gosh. But for a lot of moms, 
you are really sick still at 14 days. You may still be in the hospital. You may be struggling to nurse. You're sleep deprived. And so the idea here is to, is to create a longer time period and more reminders so that we can make sure that babies um, get put on their parents' insurance. Nobody's leaving their infant uninsured on purpose. This is really a gotcha by the insurance companies. And for new moms, it can wind up being tens of thousands of dollars right off the start. You know, like, wait, wait, just like, wait a second, Rep Porter, because this sounds crazy, absolutely crazy that someone has two weeks after childbirth, which could be by C-section, uh, could be dangerous, you know, the, I mean, you can't imagine that you get just two weeks and otherwise you suffer this incredible economic penalty. Who in the world ever thought of this? And you've mentioned insurance companies, but because you just can't imagine that well, and I think it's hard for a lot of people who haven't been there, who haven't had kids to understand that just because you're out of the hospital doesn't mean you're well. Right? No, I mean, it's your know, childbirth is a natural experience. You're not sick, but you may also not be well. So um, this is another bipartisan bill. I think it's a really terrific one. And the fact that there are so many opportunities to raise these issues Right at this point in time, and we've had at least some women in political bodies. I mean, today, women are still 25% of Congress. 25%. So, whenever I hear anyone say, there's just so many women in Congress these days, I think so yeah. many women, like that's what shows up at a, you know, a Nordstrom Rock sale. Like, right. <laughs> not so many women, right, um, in Congress. We're still the minority, and particularly different kinds of women. Younger mm -hmm. women, single mothers, yep. two good examples, women in the sciences. These mm -hmm. folks are still underrepresented in our in our political body. And it shows sometimes in how we make policy. Mm -hmm. No, you, you are so absolutely right. That's why we're so happy that you're there. So there's a report that you recently re released that found that during the pandemic, the lack of support from both government and employers for balancing work, home, and childcare responsibilities is pushing women out of the labor force. Can you explain a little bit more about that too? Because just as we've been talking about, they're just blind spots that people just may not be seeing. They see more women in the workforce and they don't understand that just what this pandemic has done. Well, this true grew in a way out of my own personal experience. I remember in about July, um, about a year ago saying, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Like my kids weren't no, not you. doing virtual school. Like I wasn't as skilled. There were still, you know, I, I wouldn't be unmuted on the Zoom and I, I didn't have good lighting and I didn't, you know, I wasn't as good at, you know, figuring out how to communicate on Zoom. And I remember saying like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. And I had a friend who said to me, a lot of people can't, like I, you know, a lot of people are leaving. And I started thinking about it and talking to my friends and we got a report from um, the National Economic Council and really saw what the problem is. I mean, McKinsey, which is not exactly a women's rights organization, found that there was this huge exodus of women last, last summer um, in the months following the pandemic. And we are seeing those jobs come back, but we're not necessarily seeing women come back into the workforce. So here's a hard statistic that demonstrates this. Women's workforce participation today is at the same level it was in 1988. It's the lowest level since 1988. So we have lost about a generation and a half 
in terms of women's workforce participation. And this matters. It matters for women's retirement security. It matters for women having access to childcare and sick leave. Um, and it matters to our, the vitality and expertise in our workforce. So whether you have kids or not, whether you've had to step out of the workforce or not, whether everybody should care about making sure that our most talented Americans are able to continue to go to work. It's an economic issue. And it's one that frankly, our country's at a big disadvantage compared to other countries. We do less for families, less in terms of parental leave, less in terms of equal pay, less in terms of childcare assistance than virtually any other of our competitor nations around the world. Wow. Well, Representative Porter, I have one last question, and we ask this on each of our episodes. I'd love for us to just stay with you forever, but you have many other important matters to get to. But what's the silver lining going forward? We've come through pandemic, uh, re- you know, insurrection um, at the Capitol, such hard times for uh, parents, for single moms. But is there a silver lining and what might that look like going forward? There's a sense that we used to talk about sort of democracy is fragile. This was something I would hear elected officials say, you know, you have to do your part. You can't take things for granted. Every voice counts. But they were sort of slogans. And I think a lot of the things that have happened to people in this country and to this country collectively in the last year and a half that you listed are things that really demonstrate that. I mean, for me, being in the Capitol complex on those January 6th attacks, when we say democracy is fragile, we mean it. Literally, the barriers designed to protect democracy in action on the House floor were not strong enough to allow us to continue that day. So I think there's a a sense of, you know, what's at stake when we vote? Lives. Lives are at stake. What's at stake when we, you know, call our elected official and tell them about our problem? It's kids going hungry. It's people getting sick. This stuff's real. And so policy is not something that, that happens in Washington that affects other people. Policy is something that is going to potentially change the lives of everyone around us, including ourselves. And so I think it it is driven home for people a lot more why it's important to be engaged in our democracy as much as we can. Roxy, one of the producers for On the Issues. To my mom, Lisa, and grandma, Bernie, I'm so thankful to have strong women like you in my life. This is Jacqueline. To my mom, grandma, and all the strong women, mentors, and friends in my life, thank you for making me the woman I am today. We've just heard from Representative Katie Porter and a couple of shout outs to moms. More to come in this episode, and you can read these special Mother's Day appreciations and tributes online at MsMagazine.com. So how are moms faring? Those who have to pick up the pieces when there isn't enough money to go around? When they're working multiple jobs, how are they making ends meet? I turn to Dr. Aisha Nayandaro for answers. Aisha, you are the Chief Executive Officer of Springboard to Opportunities and Director of Magnolia Mothers Trust. 
let's level set a little bit. Can you tell us about the origin, vision, and mission behind your work and specifically Magnolia Mothers Trust? Yeah, no, thank you so much for that question. So Springboard to Opportunities provides program and services for families that live in federally subsidized affordable housing. We are based in Jackson, Mississippi, and we've been doing this work since 2013 of holistically providing wraparound services um, that our families that we work with tell us they need to be successful in life, school, and work. In 2017, I became concerned that in spite of all of the programs that we were providing, we were not moving the um, needle on poverty, meaning that we were not seeing a positive transition out of the affordable housing communities that we work in. And since our organization is radically resident driven, whenever we are trying to understand something or whenever we're confused, we go to our residents and ask them, what is it that we're missing? What is it that you need? And so in this iteration, we went out and I was like, you know, something is not connecting, just be honest with us. And every conversation that we heard from families during that time, the common denominator was the lack of financial resources plain and simple cash. It could have been money for anything as it relates to something as inconsequential as pizza on a Friday night or school uniforms for their kids to participate in extracurricular activities or resources for car repair so that individual individuals could get to and from church. I mean, to and from work, excuse me. And church too, I'm sure. I know, church too, that's important. <laughs> for this some folks, right? so Thank you for that, Michelle. Um, and, and I'm a pastor's kid, so yes. So you know well. that you need to be talking about that. I know so. it's a Freudian slip, but it clearly was what I need to be talking about today. So we may get there. Um, but yeah, and so we kept hearing that. And so I was like, okay, we are hearing this time and time again, it's the common denominator. So how do we go about giving our families the cash resources that they need? And this was in 2017. So this is prior to COVID and all of the crop of guaranteed income pilots and demonstrations that are now. And it was just, you know, us really thinking about how do we address this need that we're hearing from our residents? And that's where the Magnolia Mothers Trust came from. I work with women in the community to design this program saying, okay, there's not a model out there. This is our best understanding and best thinking about this. And if we were to make this happen, what should, could it look like? And our moms told us they would love it to be 12 months. We landed on a thousand dollars a month and it's definitely no strings attached because for so many of the families that we work with, given, re given the reality of being connected with the social safety net, they are used to things being punitive. They are used to things having restrictions. They are used to being told what it is that they can and cannot do with their resources. And so we definitely wanted this to be in contrast to all of that. So this is like universal basic income in a way, right? It's a, for us, it's different than universal basic income. We call our work guaranteed income because it's targeted. So, you know, universal basic, basic income is everybody gets a check. Oh, you're saying mamas get a check. I am saying black mamas get a check. I am saying black mamas in federally subsidized affordable housing get a check. On average, the families that we work with make less than $12,000. So we are very intentional in being targeted saying that if we support those who have been most systematically victimized by the resources limits that we put in place, as well as our social safety net, all of us can benefit. Yeah, no, you know, on that note, because there are people who just don't get it and don't understand. And so I'd love for you to break that down a little bit more, because it's an important point that you're making about systemic inequalities that roll into this space, that it's not just out of the blue that we see Black mothers suffering. 
That's exactly right. So for us, it really was looking at the systemic policies uh, as it relates to discriminatory employment practices, knowing that Black women in Mississippi make 61% of what white men make. It was the discriminatory practices as it relates to our social safety net and for years how we have penalized individuals who need those resources that are actually designated to them by our federal government and saying that we are going to inherently take away your dignity by when you need to assess these. So we were very intentional by naming a thing and saying, okay, we are going to center our work um, on Black mothers. And not only are we going to center our work, in centering our work, we were trying to do a couple of things. We were giving our moms the resources that they need. We wanted to lift up these policies that were ineffective and harmful. And we also wanted to begin to change the narrative about how we go about addressing poverty and how we view the role of Black mothers in this country and how we have, in essence, uh, allowed a lot of them to be forgotten and harmed. And so we said, we're going to set out to change all of those pieces. And we are going to leverage the fact that we are here in Mississippi where the cost of living is low. We're going to leverage that fact to make magic happen. And that's what we've been doing since 2018. Also joining me for our interview with Dr. Nayandaro was Tamara Ware, one of the moms in the Springboard to Opportunity second cohort of the Magnolia Mothers Trust. What a great name. Tamara Ware is a caregiver and a mother of three girls. Well, Tamara, I want to turn to you because you were in Springboard to Opportunity's second cohort of the Magnolia Mothers Trust. How did the program impact your life? It impacted me a whole lot and for the better, um, I must say. Um, the women, such as Miss Aisha, not just her, it was two or three other women who they really encourage us. It wasn't just about the money. It was the motivational speakers, um, the different opportunities that I were open, that was opened up for me. Um, it made me a lot more social towards other people because oh, I'm not quiet at all, but um, towards opening up to other mothers who were in the same situation as me. Because sometimes when you're going through something financial, it's hard to talk to others about it, regardless if they're going through it with you. Um, but this program has, it was just a big eye opener on everything. We had, um, we went to a women's retreat. That was something I never did ever before in my life. Probably if I never met Miss Aisha, I probably would have never done. And it was just, it was just a great uplifter, women empowerment. Um, I truly enjoyed the program. Um, because let me give you a little back of uh, my backstory. Okay. When COVID first hit, it was hard. It, it was really hard on me, very hard on me. Um, because my job that I was actually working at, this is before they actually shut down. I had worked there years that I actually do childcare myself now, but I've been in childcare business for 18 years. Okay. My job due to COVID, um, my job did shut down due to COVID, but before they shut down, I had to quit because I have daughters who have asthma and I have to take in, take that serious for my children. I had to make a decision for my family that I wasn't ready for, but I prayed about. I prayed about it. I left in January. 
I actually prayed about it. I'll never forget February 17th. And I know the Lord moved fast, but I ain't know he moved that fast. Um, here they come in March calling me and telling me that I've been accepted in the program. And that it was emotional um, because I, I didn't know how I was going to make it, how I was going to survive. So I, um, as I got to talk to Miss Aisha Moore and Miss Sarah Moore, um, they kind of was explaining to us, is it strictly for you and your family and your needs and what you need? And actually, I needed it because my car was on its last leg. It needed to be repaired. I had a lot of things going on at once. And I was patching the situation, just patching here, patching there. But it really gave me um, some financial leeway because I was able to do things such as have my daughters their own parties. We have not lacked anything since that day. Um, literally, and I haven't, my last time receiving the check was of February of this year. Aisha, and building on Tamara's experiences and that of other moms, What's been the result and success of the first two cohorts? What have you learned about the value of supporting mothers, Black mothers, in this way? You know, so it's a couple of things that, you know, I've learned and that this project has made very clear um, is that cash is important. I mean, of course, that's a given, but not only is cash important, I think when we talk about cash, I think what Tamara just said was really significant and important. She said it just wasn't about the money. I think we put a lot of emphasis on guaranteed income and the consumer sovereignty of what cash allows you to buy, which is important. But what I have learned, which is much more important, especially when talking about the population that we work with, is how they are able to show up and see themselves for the first time. It's much more important than a thousand dollars a month. And I think it's much more important than that because we are talking about a population of women who not have been allowed to understand that they are entitled to joy and that they can have joy. And we never talk about black women joy um, and the importance of how that allows you to not only show up in this moment, but it allows you to show up um, for your future as well and allows you to have the bandwidth to take a step back and to really plan for the future and to begin to um, actualize your dreams and do the future forecasting. So that has been what we've learned and that has been so much more important for me than all of our data and statistics about what individuals are bought, what individuals have paid off and those things, which we definitely have, you know, I run an organization so we understand the power of data and we definitely have that. But I think that as we continue to talk about guaranteed income, just having the narrow frame of it being, you know, cash as if that is a bomb that solves all ailments, I think it's too narrow. Mm hmm. Well, I really appreciate your saying that and would love to hear even more for our listeners what the types of life conditions and circumstances are of the women that you work with. And, and here, you know, more just to level set um, and, and not as a way of a, a kind of uh, pathologizing, which sadly happens so often in our society where women are blamed. Uh, working class women, impoverished women are blamed for their circumstances and fingers are pointed at them, but rather with our kind of spirit at Ms. Magazine, which is just to say, this is how women are living. This is what they're experiencing. This is what moms and caretakers are experiencing. And in fact, on that note, 
coming from the traditions of so many different cultures, which is that, you know, there are people who are doing mothering who may not be biologically connected to the uh, kids that they're caring for. They may be aunties, they may be grandmothers, they may not even be aunties and grandmothers, but through a very old tradition of just saying you're mine and you need care and we're taking care of you. So can you give us, you know, just a sense of the, the kinds of lives that the people that you're helping, you know, where they're coming from, what are they experiencing? And I love that you introduced this ideal of care. As I know, Tamara initially introduced it. We're talking about her career for the last 18 years and how she's a caregiver. And with the pandemic and caregiving, we saw exponentially how much in the impact of that with more individuals working from home and remote learning with the kids. You know, for the families that we work with, they have been telling us for years that limited access to childcare was preventing them from working outside of the home and progressing in their careers at a rate in which, you know, they wanted to and we ignored them. Um, and now that white and middle class women were saying is because of COVID, we really began to have some conversations about the role of care and how we really need to be fixing care as well, because care within this country is not working. But specifically, you know, we're just thinking about the population that we work with. A lot of these women um, work two and three jobs, and they work two or three jobs because they are jobs where they are not provided a living wage. Here in Mississippi, our federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. Um, you know, Tamara talked about being a care worker. I believe Tamara worked made about 10 or $11 an hour. There is no place that you can live within this country where you can have safe housing that's affordable and survive off of $10 an hour or $7.25 an hour. So you have had individuals who are working two, three jobs, whether or not it's care work, whether or not it's retail, whether or not it's a service industry, but because of the policies that we've allowed to put in, allowed to be put in place and maintained for the long haul, individuals have not been able to acquire wages at the same rate in which others have. And we have never recognized, well, not, let me not say ever, but we have not recognized the failing that all of us have um, and been complicit in that reality. And the narrative that we tell ourselves is that, oh, you know, individuals are choosing not to work or individuals are choosing um, whatever it is that we feel that they're choosing, but that's not the reality. We haven't set it up where the wages that we are providing are allowing individuals to work and care for their children and care for their extended family members. Because as we know in the black community, and a lot of times you are sandwiched between caring for your children as well as caring for your parents or other elders within your community. And we have not allowed them an opportunity to make wages in a way in which all of that makes sense. all as representative katie porter made clear if you're a single mom you've got it tough even if you're in congress that's only exacerbated if you're living on minimum wage and working multiple jobs to put food on the table so i turned back to aisha and tamara mindful of being respectful but also wanting to give voice to the realities that many mothers many women in the magnolia trust experience you know, for a lot of our families, you know, what we hear time and time and time again is that the reality is that they're exhausted. Uh, so if you are working two or three jobs and taking care of your kids, you're starting your day, 
at 6 a.m., if not earlier, and your day goes continually until 10 o'clock, 10 o'clock p.m., if not later. And you are constantly moving from one thing to the next, trying to get kids out the door, trying to get yourself to work, shifting through um, from one job to the next, trying to get home, do the food, do the homework, all of those pieces, you know, so it's just a continuous cycle, but more so than it being a continuous cycle of being exhausted, it's also a continuous cycle of you being felt, feeling as if you are invisible, because you know that this is your narrative where you are working as hard as you are, but the belief goes in this country is that you are poor because you choose to be poor, and you're lazy, and you're not doing enough, so match that up against the reality that you have where you are doing all that you can, and you know that those two don't jail. And so it creates this cycle where, um, you know, we have heard our moms say where they felt as if they were failing or if they felt as if they weren't good parents, when none of that is the case. The women that we work with are the strongest, bravest, most kick butt women that I know. They are absolutely amazing. I have no idea how they do all of the things that they do and still show up with laughter, um, but they do. And we don't allow them an opportunity to see themselves um, in all of that they're capable of. And I also think that that is by design of how we, you know, how we have set poverty up in this country to make it so where you are not seeing yourself in all that you are capable of, and not only all that you're capable of, all that you're already doing, because I think poverty is also designed to take away your power and your voice, and that's how we keep individuals impoverished, not just, you know, the financial aspect of it, yes, but then also, you know, with having individuals believe that it's an individual failing, that they are not doing something correct, rather, rather than actually owning that it's a societal failing, that we as society are not doing something correct. I think that's what it all means at the end of the day for all of us. And Tamara, I'd like to turn to you and basically pose the same question, which is what has it meant for you um, the investment for you and your family? It has meant for me um, a financial boost and a lack of stress and worrying about how I'm going to do this and how I'm going to do that. And when you're a mother, that is your number one issue, you know, and it is a, when you're in this program, the reason why I like the program it's because the, of the empowerment. Because staying in low income, you do feel labeled. You do feel a part of someone labeling you and being a part of a statistic, you know, and different things like that. You go through those issues too. Um, I want a house for my girls, um, but I know it's all in God's timing and it will come, you know, I'm claiming it. Uh, but I do thank them for the opportunity. It was one of the best opportunities I've ever had. I'm, I'm gonna say that in my life, in my 36 years. then shared that before she had support from Magnolia Mother's Trust, it was hard to make ends meet. She worked multiple jobs and to accommodate her work schedule, she had to put her daughter on a bus at 5 a.m. every morning to make it to work by 6 a.m. And when her kids got home, they were exhausted. And so was she. 
I did kind of feel like I um, failed them in a way, trying just trying to make a living for them, you know, working long hours like that. I even noticed that my kids' grades start to slip because of me working those long hours. And if I'm working from six to six, when I get home, immediately I got to cook, you know, so they can have dinner. And then it's like, they going to sleep. I didn't have, they just were, it was hard on me when my, with my schedule like that. Kimberly LaSalle sending a love and light to Shakti Gwen for teaching me how to nurture myself and be my own mother. Thank you. Thanks for being a caregiver. A mother is not just a woman who gives birth to a child. As challenging as giving birth is, that is really the easier aspect of mothering. Those of you who have pledged commitment to mothering and have dedicated time, effort, and energy know what an amazing task is afoot. A mother puts the needs of her children first. This is one way to spell mother, M. Magnanimous and management. Mothers have to be altruistic and have the ability to administer and supervise. O, organized and open-minded. An effective mother has a system that works and is tolerant of difference. T, tenacity and tactful. A mother will go to any lengths to protect her child and will be sensitive to his needs. H, humility and honor. A good mother puts the need of her child above hers and appreciates each child. E, endearing and empathy. A mother is able to engage and sympathize with each child and allow each to know he or she is special, safe, and protected. Respectful and resourceful. A good mother is dutiful to each child and practice creativity to cope. Regardless of your sex, if you're mothering, I applaud and thank you for nurturing the next generation who, if loved and cared for will tenderness, will continue to nurture and ensure our positive continuity. Asheo, Happy Mother's Day, from Professor Opal Palmer Adisa and the Institute for Gender and Development Studies. Later in our show, we'll turn back to Aisha and Tamara. Now let's turn to Nicole Lynn Lewis, author of the newly released book, Pregnant Girl, which chronicles her time as a single pregnant teen who goes on to attend William and Mary with a baby in tow. Nicole, it's really such a pleasure to have you with us. And you are telling a very important story uh, an important story about your life and you know you were once a teen mom and you overcame extreme odds graduating with honors from the college of william and mary and as you say while working like hell to create a safe <laughs> secure life you know for yourself and for your daughter and now you're the founder and ceo of the nonprofit generation hope which helps teen parents prepare for and navigate the challenges of college while raising children. That is amazing. And what I'd love for you to do is tell our listeners a bit more about your journey and what came with that journey for you, including perhaps some of the messy parts. And because you are, you know, you're part of a success story too, and more than just that kind of glossy way of success story, but really putting the, you know, the heart and the sweat into making a life for yourself and for your daughter and doing so with pride and dignity. 
Yeah, thank you so much. And, you know, um, there are a lot of messy parts, so that's pretty easy <laughs> to, to share. Um, you know, I was a senior in high school when I discovered my pregnancy and um, I was college bound. I was an honor roll student. I had a stack of college acceptance letters on one side of my desk and a positive pregnancy test on the other. And it was really hard for me to see how those two things could ever coexist and kind of come together. And I didn't have any role models in my neighborhood, my community, uh, my school in terms of young women who had gotten pregnant and had gone on to college. That just didn't happen. Most of the, the young women that I knew in that situation disappeared and um, often dropped out of school. They uh, often went and worked in you know, retail or service industries. And um, you know, I didn't know if college was actually possible for me. And I thought at the same time that education was probably the best way for me to provide for my daughter and that it was gonna be really important that I at least try you know, to continue on towards college. And um, that road was really difficult. You know, the next year of my life, nothing about my life said college. I ended up leaving home. I was uh, sleeping in, you know, cars in the high school parking lot, living place to place. I was in a really tumultuous relationship with my daughter's father. Um, when I found out that I had been accepted into William and Mary, I was eight months pregnant and hungry and um, living day to day in a Motel 6. And it just did not seem like college <laughs> was a reality, even though I held that, that acceptance letter in my hand. Um, when I started school, my daughter was a little under three months old. So I was a new mom and a new college student all at the same time. I had this hand-me-down backpack. Uh, I had a breast pump in it. I had, you know, just no money for even, you know, the meal that I was going to have that day. I didn't know where tuition or book money was coming from. I often tell people I stepped foot on campus, looked down at my feet and thought, I don't belong here. And so, I think that's... Were you, were you from Virginia because the College of William and Mary is in Virginia? Where were you when you got this letter? I was in Virginia. I, mm -hmm. I was uh, I had gone to middle and high school in Tidewater, the Tidewater area. So mm -hmm. Virginia Beach, Virginia. Um, and my sister had actually gone to William and Mary, my older sister. So I was familiar with William and Mary. Um, I had applied to both Hampton University and William and Mary and um, decided to go to to William and Mary. And uh, yeah, it was intimidating, to say the least. I can imagine that it because it's intimidating for individuals of means who've had a clean pathway on to college and what years are we talking about when was it that you you were 17 but what year was it that you that you discovered that you were pregnant uh 1998 i graduated mm -hmm. from high school in 1998 so a little while ago <laughs> yes, it was a little it was a little while ago but but still this is a kind of modern time of of finding that out and still even within these modern times the stigma and also the shame. So what was that like finishing high school, being in high school, knowing that you were uh, pregnant and wondering about what comes next from the high school, you know, from your perspective as a student in high school? I remember that, you know, when I, before my pregnancy, I had all of these champions, like all of these cheerleaders in terms of faculty or, or administrators and teachers who, saw me as this rock star student and were willing to, you know, provide all the recommendation letters and help me fill out, you know, a, a scholarship application, for example. And then 
it was almost instantaneous that as soon as I discovered my pregnancy and people started to hear about my pregnancy, some of my biggest cheerleaders were my biggest critics. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember one teacher in particular who, you know, just made it incredibly difficult for me to to be able to succeed in her class. It was my favorite class. It was journalism. And I went from an A and writing for the paper, you know, the school's paper to a D and really because she wouldn't look me in the eye, you know, she definitely had opinions about the fact that I was now expecting and and wanted to make life more difficult for me. So it it was extremely hard. And we see that, you know, in the students that we work with um, some horror stories about um, how they're treated in school environments. Mm -hmm. And this is the story that you tell in your wonderful wonderful book pregnant girl uh which is soon to be released and i commend our listening audience to get your hands on this book i've been fortunate enough to to receive a pre-copy but this is the story that you talk about right yeah yeah i talk about in the book just uh exactly that 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 school became a really strange place for me. And it was interesting because I had always been, you know, a really strong student, honor roll student involved in every club you can think of. And then suddenly it was, it was just not a, an environment where I felt supported or welcomed at all. And, you know, one of the points that you emphasize in the book and that you have, in fact, across other writings that you've done and appearances is that it's that kind of stigmatization, that kind of shaming that makes it difficult for young women who become pregnant um, while in high school to be able to make it out of high school with um, you know, with a diploma and even to make it into college. So can you talk a little bit about about that? What what kind of breaks down for um, for young women when they become pregnant while in high school? Ironically, we we take the support that uh, we could provide to a young woman in that situation away from them at the most critical time, (laughs) the time that they need that support. And we tell them, you've got to figure it out on your own. And then we look at their their inability to graduate from from high school, their inability to go to college as um, as evidence for why we're justified in kind of ripping that rug right out from underneath them. And so, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is that what good do we create when we stigmatize and shame and marginalize young mothers? Um, We have a lot of work to do in really saying, hey, this is an opportunity for us to rally around this this uh, student and also to rally around this child that's soon to be coming into the world. Um, that's where we have a real opportunity to to really help these families thrive and overcome the many challenges that are going to be in their way. And and you know you've written about how so much of this is rooted in racism and in sexism. Uh, the, this this way in which basically um, single moms, teen pregnant moms are are shut out of of what is good and what can be transformative in society. And you write in a recent Washington Business Journal article, you wrote, most teen mothers won't earn a degree before the age of 30. And you say, in fact, the college graduation rate for these students is less than 2%. 
Black, Native American, and Hispanic single mothers are less likely, as you write, uh, to hold undergraduate degrees than white and Asian single mothers, with only 22% of Black single mothers holding an associate's degree or bachelor's degree. You know, how do we begin to how do we begin to understand that and and how do we begin to do something transformative that changes that narrative because what you're pointing out there is that it's not just that single moms will be stereotyped and shamed especially if they were you know pregnant as teenagers but it actually turns out that single moms who happen to be asian or who happen to be white have a different road ahead now what accounts for the difference yeah, I, I think part of this goes back to what we've been taught about teen pregnancy, which is really inaccurate, which is that, you know, we often think that that the pregnancy is what caused the issues or things to go off the rails in a young person's life. And, and what we know is that there are many underlying issues and underlying things that were happening in a young person's life far before, long before the pregnancy. And for um, for young people who are, um, you know, are from racialized communities, for young people of color, um, especially young women who find themselves in these situations, the systemic racism that is at play in our society is really, you know, that comes way before the pregnancy. It puts them in a position where it becomes really difficult for them to overcome the challenges in a different way than their white or Asian counterparts. Um, so we know already that Black youth have an uphill battle to college. You know, starting from what we know about, um, you know, mortality rates uh, for for black mothers and black and brown mothers and trauma experienced in childhood for black and brown children. Um, you know, not to mention, once they get into school, the school to prison pipeline. I mean, there's so many things that that really can cause um, uh, real hurdles to getting out of high school and getting into college. What we're seeing in teen pregnancy is that now you're layering on top of that, um, becoming a parent early and the challenges that come with that. And so I think one of the opportunities that we have and something that I wanna convey in the book is that you know, there, we can change the way that we've been thinking about teen pregnancy and what, the way that we've been talking about it and really name the role of race in the lives of young people, even before they become a teen parent. And we have to start to address those issues and really try to address those disparities. And that has to be a part of this teen pregnancy conversation. Well, I'm so happy that that you raise that the kind of systemic and the structural types of issues that pre exist the pregnancy itself, because it's not just the pregnancy right I mean it's a number of other things and support networks that may not exist because those infrastructures and institutions are simply weren't there before and they're made even more vulnerable and, and fragile if one happens to be Latin X you know indigenous or a young uh, black girl. And in your book, you also write about there being some examples of good bouts of fortune along the way, such that if one is actually able to somehow make it through high school, even though people may turn on you, and the experiences are the teachers who adored you before and administrators who adored you before may blame you and shame you and stigmatize you for the pregnancy. But if you're, you are somehow able to fill out those college applications, 
and somehow able um, to uh, get admitted um, based on all that's been good before, then once you get there, there are certain dynamic things that you can do. And so you write about this. For example, you, you write about how your Pell Grants and other loans stretched across all 12 months of the year uh, for your tuition, food, and other expenses. Can you break that down just a little bit for people who don't necessarily have to think about that? I mean, I think that we have some of our listeners who do, and we're curious about that because they come from spaces that happen to be um, where they've experienced vulnerabilities, and some of our other listeners may not. So, so talk about that Pell Grant stretching the money once you're in college to make it work for you and your daughter. Yeah, so you know, one thing that is different about being a parent in college today versus 20 years ago uh, when I was in college is that that the cost of higher education has skyrocketed over the past 20 years. And so um, I even say, I pose the question, which is a very real question, is whether or not I would have been able to stretch a Pell Grant over 12 months, for example, in today's uh, you know, the, the, t- the cost structure of higher education today? And the answer is no, I would not have been able to do that. Um, 20 years ago, I barely subsisted off of, off of those Pell Grants and, and the different financial aid packages that I was able to get over those four years. There were many meals that I had to skip. I, I remember distinctly going to a supermarket, um, getting about $20 worth of groceries, you know, having my daughter pushing her in the cart, getting to the cash register and having my card declined. And I remember pushing her out into the parking lot and looking at her and not knowing how we were going to eat that night. And that that was something that happened many a times over those four years. Um, Even the housing that I was able to secure on campus, most college campuses do not have family housing um, and not enough for those that do have it. You know, there are long waiting lists and I was able to get into family housing at William and Mary that wasn't even intended for me as an undergraduate student. It was really intended for graduate students and adjunct professors to live there with their families. I found a loophole. I was able to advocate for myself and get in there. Um, but the vast majority of parenting college students in this country, there's 4 million parenting college students in this country, that's not a reality. They're not able to find that loophole, that, that family housing unit doesn't exist. Um, and so there were many a times that you know, I got off of a waiting list for childcare, or I was able to find a loophole that the stars aligned for mm-hmm. me in a, in a way that they just don't align for most of many in the vast majority of the students that are in this situation. Well, you are advocating for yourself on many different fronts. In fact, you do write about how uh, today the $6,000 Pell Grant does not even cover half of tuition at a public college. And, and you write about, you know, getting placed in safe and clean apartment on campus that was designed for families, but it didn't happen automatically. You really had to uh, convince the school that you and your daughter even qualified for being a family, you know, yes. which is <laughs> which is ironic in every kind of way, which says a lot about the presumptions that were built into this about what makes a family, you know, the male grad student and his wife, and exactly. that they have then a child, but not not, um, but not a woman having a child as being as constituting a family. Exactly. Yes, exactly. I think who deserves, you know, to have that label and who doesn't. And I think that that was something and I, you know, 
I think at William and Mary, as with many schools, especially kind of you know prestigious quote unquote schools, there's a sense that a student like me would not exist on their campus. And I've talked to to um, other institutions that have made that assumption. And the reality is that students like me are on your campuses. You just don't know about them, and they're at risk of falling through the cracks, which is what 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 I was up against um, each and every day. My name is Carmen, and I want to wish my mom, Norma Jean, a very happy Mother's Day. I'm so proud of my mom and the person that she is. My mom raised me as a single mom. She was the first to graduate college, and she made sure that I was the second. One of the lessons that my mom taught me was to be civically engaged, to care about what's going on in our community. I remember going to my first protest when I was very young. We were protesting a young man by the name of Ernest Lacey, who had been murdered in the community by the police. Of course, we went and we protested on his behalf to make sure that our voices were heard and to make sure that this injustice should not happen. That memory serves me well, and unfortunately, many years later, we are still having that same fight. But many years later, my mother still is on the ground making sure that people have the right to vote, making sure that people have the resources and education they need to understand what it means to be civically engaged. I owe my political education to my mom. Mom, thank you. Happy Mother's Day. Hi, this is Mariah, and I want to say Happy Mother's Day to all the beautiful mamas in my life, including my mama, Titsi Joe, Titsi Mal, Mamam, Allegra, Christina, and Joanna. I love you all so much. So what does it mean to have women's backs? Is it just a slogan? Who's really doing the work? Clearly, with programs like Magnolia Mother's Trust and Generation Hope, they are part of grassroots and civil society efforts to lead the way. They're making a difference. But many are saying there's more that government can do, such as if banks and businesses can be bailed out when they fall on hard times, how about parents? That's part of what we're hearing from Representative Katie Porter, whom we heard earlier in this particular episode. So what's the silver lining? A question we ask every episode. Wrapping up this episode, here's Nicole Lewis, followed by Dr. Aisha Nayandaro. I think the silver lining is, you know, I'm thankful for everything that I experienced, um, even the most difficult times, because it led me to this work. It led me to, um, you know, really making sure that we're removing barriers for others for paving the way. And, um, and I, I, there's not a day that goes by that I would change anything about it. I think um, this is my, my calling, my, my passion. And I think we're in a moment as a country where this work is, is vital and we have the opportunity to help to change people's kind of mindsets about what is possible for young families. And so I'm just thankful to be here in a moment where I can maybe help to do that. Oh, so many silver linings, Michelle. I mean, um, <laughs> you know, we started this work in 2013, 2018, excuse me, with the Magnolia Mothers Trust. And the fact that we're here at this place in this country where we are having all of these conversations about 
cash and all of these conversations about centering families and their needs uh, and how we think about creating um, an economy and creating a social contract that works for all of us, just not a few of us. Uh, so that's a silver lining that we have so many allies now working alongside with us. Uh, from the very beginning, the Magnolia Mothers Trust was all about challenging um, the structures that hold Black women in this country, particularly you know, poor Black women in the Deep South. Um, with the stereotypes around work ethic, the paternalistic nature of our social safety net, who is deserving of dignity um, and help. We have always been working to challenge those conversations uh, and those ideas. And the fact that the Magnolia Mothers Trust is helping to build a movement, empowering Black women to unapologetically position them as worthy, capable, and valuable. Um, and the fact that we have so many other individuals looking to us in this movement work that we started here in the South with other women, um, with Black women, that is the silver lining. I am in Mississippi. I tell folks all the time, I'm in Mississippi. We just got rid of our Confederate flag last summer. If we can do this work here, unapologetically do this work here, imagine what can be done worldwide or nationwide if we just decided to trust and get, it up, get out of our own way and not lean into what it is that we tell ourselves is necessary or possible or what has to be. And we just look to the individuals for the wisdom. The Magnolia Mothers Trust, I am the leader of the work, but it is not my work. The women that I work with told us what it was that they needed. They said they needed cash without restrictions to support their families. And I went about making that happen with other partners. And so if we just got back to listening to community and grounding what it is that we build in the wisdom of community, and the sky is the limit. So it is so much silver lining. It's like raining silver, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, it's been my pleasure to have you and Tamara join us for our show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you, Tamara, for saying yes to this opportunity. I appreciate you, sweetheart. I would like to send out a special salute to the women who are mothers and who mother their children that are not their biological children. These are the mothers of the world, the play moms, the moms who take care of other people's children, maybe the, the children that they themselves did not birth. These are the moms who have stood in the gap maybe for the absent mom or for the mom for whatever reason who couldn't be there. And in that vein, I'd like to say a special shout out to my own other mother, uh, Bertie Mae Smith, who was the mother I needed to have, the soft place to land, and who certainly helped inspire my growth and development. This is Lillian LaSalle, and I would like to send my 10 second Mother's Day memo to my amazing mom, Kimberly LaSalle. I love you. Peace. Happy Mother's Day to women all across the world. My name is Antoine Simpkins. I am a PhD candidate at UCLA. I wish to give a special Mother's Day shout out to my mom, Beverly Grant, 
and to my mentor, Professor Michelle Goodwin and advisors, Dr. Sarah Haley and Vilma Ortiz. Thank you so much for all that you do and uplifting me and various other students as well, keeping us informed and enlightened. And thank you to all women uh, for keeping us aware of the issues and keeping communities uplifted. Thank you so much and have the greatest of Mother Days in 2021. Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. I want to thank my guests for joining us, for being a part of this insightful and critical conversation. And to our listeners, I thank you for tuning in for the full story. We hope you join us again for our next episode where we will be reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is with the launch of our new podcast series, 15 Minutes of Feminism. Who Killed Brianna Taylor. It will be a new launch that you will not want to miss. And for more information about what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com. Now, if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed, and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to on the Issues with Michelle Goodwin in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. We are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners and bring the hard-hitting content you've come to expect by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show. And please support independent feminist media. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. And if you want to reach us to recommend guests for our show or topics that you want to hear about, write to us at OnTheIssuesAtMsMagazine.com and we do read our mail. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producer for this episode are Roxy Zoll and Mariah Lindsay. We thank Oliver Hogg for research and digital assistance. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Marsh Allen, and music by Chris J. Lee. Stephanie Wilner provides executive assistance. Thank you.